what impact does the pandemic have on the global trading system? What role will trade play in the global recovery and global economy of the future? After COVID-19, what steps are needed to make the trading system more sustainable and more inclusive? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, and today we will be discussing U.S.-China trade relations when decoupling meets dual circulation. The new U.S. administration is getting into its stride, and the post-COVID recovery is taking shape. And in the context of President Biden's ambition to develop a foreign policy for the middle class and to build back better, value chains across the globe are being reassessed. There are discussions about building new resilient supply chains. Biden even signed an executive order to that effect in June of this year. And reshoring, nearshoring, or even friendshoring have become a feature of the U.S. trade debate. Now, amid these trends, there is also the politics of trade. U.S.-China trade tensions have continued amid concerns about China's growing technological dominance and the dependencies that dominance creates. Before the pandemic struck, this led to a focus on decoupling. Now, decoupling the two largest economies in the world when their trade links are so deep and interconnected is no easy feat. It's not surprising that some have called the two countries together Chimerica. Still, policymakers on both sides of the Pacific seem to be thinking about reducing dependence on the other. And decoupling may well be a symptom of a broader development of deglobalization. Now, where will this lead to? What is the future of the U.S.-China trade relationship? To help understand these questions, I'm joined by two fantastic thinkers in the field. I'm pleased to welcome Alicia Garcia Herrero back to the AIG Global Trade Series. Alicia is a senior fellow at European think tank Bruegel. She's also the chief economist for the Asia Pacific at Natixis and a non-resident research fellow at the Madrid-based think tank Real Instituto Alcano. She's currently adjunct professor at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and member of the advisory board of the China think tank Merix. And secondly, from Washington, I welcome Stephanie Segal. Stephanie is Senior Fellow of the CSIS Economics Program in Washington, D.C., and she works on U.S.-China economic relations. Until 2017, she was co-director of the East Asia Office at the U.S. Department of the Treasury, and she was a senior economist at the IMF working on emerging market economies. Thank you very much to both of you for joining me. Now, perhaps, Alicia, we need to start by explaining the title of this podcast a little bit, Decoupling and Dual Circulation. Now, you've been working on deglobalization for some time now, and in fact, one of your most recent papers is called Deglobalization in the Context of U.S.-China Decoupling. Can you explain briefly to us the thinking 
behind decoupling and China's corollary dual circulation? Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you all. I'm sure we'll have an interesting discussion on on this wonderful thing that trade has been for all of us. Yeah, I mean, we first need to start by saying that we're all talking about bad news here, deglobalization, decoupling, and frankly speaking, dual circulation. Because at the end of the day, dual circulation to me means China's basically retrenching. China's looking for self-sufficiency. And this is literally the link between the two. Now, of course, a much harder thing to discuss is the causality. Is it because China is retrenching that we're getting into decoupling or is it because China is forced to decouple that China is retrenching? So, and this, these are really hard questions. You know, where does the, the issue start? One could argue looking at trade data that even deglobalization may have started before decoupling. If you look at um, the size of global value chains, it started to shrink. Since 2008, when we use input-output data on basically the foreign content of inputs to the free export, let alone exports to for others to uh, use and re-export. So all of this input-output data shows that something was happening before even the U.S. started to not get alone anymore. And that's why I think the key problem here is how to look into the causality of all of these things we're talking about here, deglobalization, decoupling, and dual circulation. And, and Stephanie, your, your current project at CSIS is called Degrees of Separation. And it looks, it looks not just at the desirability of decoupling, but even also the possibility of decoupling these two massive trade powers. Is it on this question of causality, is America's debate around decoupling, is that informed by, by Chinese behavior or do you think it's more a function of a broader trend in, in, in international trade? Well, thanks. Thanks first for the invitation to be here. And thanks for the question and for asking me second, because something that Alicia said, I, I really do agree with very much this idea of kind of who started it, that is definitely part of the narrative right now, that it is a reaction basically to a policy that China has had to make itself self-sufficient. And it's the policies to achieve that self-sufficiency that have actually led the U.S. to take the actions that it has to minimize its vulnerability to China. There's a backdrop to this whole conversation, which is a deterioration in the U.S.-China relationship and a deterioration in trust on both sides. And I, I think it's kind of the conventional wisdom to think that that started in the Trump administration and in reaction to President Xi. I, I think it's more accurate to view this as a trend that started really in the second Obama administration and started a few years into Xi's presidency, where he moved much more assertively to consolidate power and to to really limit some of China's commitments, whether those were commitments made in the context of the WTO or something that I was involved in, commitments that were made in the context of 
a bilateral dialogue with the United States, it was very clear that his modus operandi in China's modus operandi would be to act in China's self-interest. The U.S. response to that has been to act in what it perceives to be its self-interest. For the longest time, that self-interest was seen as benefiting from Chinese growth. That assessment has actually flipped in the last few years. And China's growth is seen much more as a threat to the United States because of the perception of how China wants to use that growth and use its growing prominence in the world. And then, Alicia, in, in the context of the post-pandemic recovery, am I correct to, to assess that the post-COVID discussion actually acts as an accelerator for some of the policy debates around dual circulation as well as decoupling? So both the Chinese and the U.S. variants of, of diverging from each other or reducing exposure to each other? Absolutely, Rem. COVID is many, many has many aspects, but if I were to identify a crucial one for trade, it's really the quest for self-sufficiency beyond China and the U.S. Let's see what's happening in Europe. I mean, we've never feel, felt at vulnerable, yeah, and, and that's why we're discussing all of the economic sovereignty issues, and this is true across the board. So, so basically, it's response to a threat you were anywhere else. And, and that's so far natural. But I want to highlight a very important aspect of China's response to COVID as regards trade. So on the one hand, China accelerates its uh, quest for self-sufficiency. So if you look at actual data, if you look at which starts well before since 2008, basically, and uh, it, it becomes much more obvious with uh, many in China 2025, and you see it in input output data. So the foreign component of intermediate goods, intermediate goods imported into China for re-export to make it simple, has really plummeted. And that's really, as an economist, where I see dual circulation starting before it was announced, if, if I may say so. Now, COVID uh, is indeed an accelerator. So we have new plans uh, to kind of double, double down on, on uh, China, made in China 2025, as we all know. It also puts the attention for China in the second part of world circulation, i.e. I expect for as much as I can, as long as I can, before it becomes harder, because what I'm doing, everybody else is doing. So in other words, if I'm myself, looking for self-sufficiency and others are, I'm not going to be able to export as much as I do. So let's grab the opportunity. And that's exactly what we see in the data for 2020 and 2021. Massive increase in Chinese exports across the globe. Uh, China's sharing global trade has increased, not decreased, since 2022, well above 14% after a quite stagnant year. So it's quite something that we see that, yeah, we we retrench, but we export. That's kind of the idea, indeed, very well separate in the concept of dual circulation. And, but it seems that that also creates the risk of a self-fulfilling prophecy, or at least that others are going to respond to this in a way by retrenching themselves. Uh, Stephanie? I think what, what happens was a reassessment of whether China's policies actually do serve you know, we can say U.S. interests are really global interests. And I think up to a point, 
there was a view that the opportunity in China was so great that there was a willingness to accept uneven terms, so to speak. But the the fact that China's ambitions, as one would expect from any country really, is to move up the value chain, to invite in investors to the extent that those investors can actually bring in best practice, advanced technology, and help in that process, that's fine until the question is, all right, well, what comes next? And whether those foreign participants are granted the same opportunities, whether competitors from outside China are granted access to Chinese markets to the same degree that China is granted access to foreign markets. I think that's the, the concern and why we've seen kind of the, the escalation in tension is that in practice, it actually hasn't worked out that same way. And it's very different when you're talking about a China of 20 years ago that wasn't the second largest economy and didn't have the ability to distort global markets in the same way that, you know, depending on how you measure it, China is now the largest economy or second largest economy and has the ability to really control output in certain sectors and influence pricing in those sectors. And you'll hear a lot of comparisons to steel and aluminum, but now translating that to higher tech sectors. And what does it mean if China becomes the dominant player in those sectors, prices things in a, in a way that basically makes it uncompetitive for anyone else to compete? And then you're left in a world where you really have a dependence, a global dependence then on China. That's, that's the kind of underlying narrative where you, you've had a lot of concern that the sorts of behaviors that worked for China in the past don't work now for the rest of the world. And just to unpack this a little bit further, are there particular sectors that are especially vulnerable to this trend of, of divergence, of, of decoupling? I mean, which, which sectors are we talking about? Is it the high tech sector or financials? What are the, the sectors we should be thinking about here? Well, we, we have, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Rem, the, the supply chain reviews. So we know that there are certain areas, semiconductors is kind of the most obvious one, where you've had a 100-day supply chain review and a lot of policy activity, not just in the United States, but in other advanced economies as well. Pharmaceuticals is another sector that COVID obviously kind of highlighted the, the various concerns there. But I... I think it's on the technology side and for reasons that we were just talking about, that there is a lot of focus. I think there's an appreciation that we are in the midst of a technological revolution that has been sped up because of COVID and the kind of what that is forced in the way that we are dependent, even more dependent now on technology and this race for, for leadership in some of these key technology areas, semiconductors, we talk about 5G and now even 6G equipment, quantum, some kind of in the, the biotech space. So it's those enabling technologies that are seen as being fundamental to kind of the next wave of economic growth and the leadership that we're seeing, the battle for that leadership 
between the U.S. and China, but I would also pull Europe, Japan, and others kind of into that conversation because I, I think Europe very much is looking at that competition and saying, well, you know, us too, we need to be there too. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation on when decoupling meets dual circulation, the future of U.S.-China trade relations with Alicia Garcia Herrero and Stephanie Segal. At a time of sluggish and uneven global growth, when geopolitics and the pandemic are stressing the rules-based global system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you would like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jack Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Brittlesman Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break. I'm going to continue our conversation with Stephanie Segal and Alicia Garcia Herrero and talk about the future of U.S.-China trade relations when decoupling meets dual circulation. Alicia, as a student of, of international economic history, I get really nervous when countries start talking about becoming self-sufficient or on reducing their exposure to the other's markets or actually moving away from interdependence. How, how far do you think this, this can go, this trend? Well, in this, that's not the way we've been educated. You know, we just, in a way, market economy, because we've been raised in market economy, right? and that's why we find it very, you know, uh, unappealing. But that's not the case of everybody around the globe. So you know, I think the idea of, of an economy of the size of China, and with, this gets repeated every time, yeah, with their own 1.3 billion consumers that they, they may or may not want to share. I mean, like, it's, it's this, you know, this, the centrality of China in, 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 in this uh, idea is so powerful that you may end up thinking, well, Self-sufficiency might not be, might not have been, and we know it wasn't a good idea for Latin America following Prebish. But I don't China, you know what I mean? I have nothing to do with those with those countries at the time. I have the technology, I have the market. I don't need it. I have, by the way, the capital because I'm a capital exporter. So why would I care? I mean, so basically the the my point is, yes, that's the way we've been trained. But from the perspective, I think things can look very different. Are they right or wrong? I think question mark is whether you can continue to move up the ladder without being tested. This is the thing. You may, but you will get your own ladder. Be your ladder. And that ladder may not look the same as the global ladder. And that's where you get these inconsistencies. Yes, you may become, I mean, this is basically the Soviet Union, let's face it. I mean, not that they were in advance in certain technologies. So is China big enough to avoid that? Is China, and this brings us to the Belt and Road Initiative, and can China build such a backyard by which there's no such thing as only China's ladder? 
and, mm-hmm. and so so this this is where maybe in the light of things and given that and this is China's view I'm not saying Stephanie that I fully agree but that that China is being contained this is my second best option because I may not become otherwise leader so so that's I think the discussion here Stephanie yeah well and I would say and, and you know this room just from the interim report that we issued on this decoupling project where we came out first by saying you know there's a difference between wholesale decoupling and a targeted narrow decoupling a wholesale decoupling is fantasy and even if you could do it it wouldn't from a u.s policymaker's perspective it wouldn't be in the best interest of the united states it wouldn't help advance our broader objectives so let's take that off the table the the targeted decoupling is one where you try to identify what are the most sensitive sectors that are truly relevant to national security. And that actually, that's not so much of a new idea. We've had restrictions in place, export controls, foreign investment screening, where we actually do restrict activities for national security. The thing that's different now is that economic security, economic growth, is now directly linked to national security. And that's why you have that focus on technology, the thinking being that technology is essential, not just for military power, but for economic growth. And that economic growth is what's fueling China's kind of military capacity. That's, those are kind of the linkages there. But if you kind of take a step back and maintain that national security focus, you still allow for those interconnections. There's nothing that prevents an exporter of leather, to take Alicia's example, to continue to export to China. There's nothing to prevent somebody in Colombia from importing then shoes from from China. So there, there should be, for the vast majority of economic activity, a continued ability to transact. The difficulty is, one, identifying what are those most sensitive sectors, and then is it possible to actually draw that line? Because not everybody's going to agree on where that line rests, and there are going to be certain types of materials that are dual use, and there are going to be certain things like data, which we could do a whole other podcast on the topic of data, that are common across all types of, of commerce. And how that data is then used is a big question. And I, I think the way people answer that question depends very much on their worldview. And, and it also, I mean, it connects to this question of how the U.S. private sector is responding to these signals coming from not not just the current Biden administration, but I mean, you even mentioned that this this discussion about decoupling started in the second Obama administration. How how has U.S. corporate life responded to these these debates? Because if I'm if I'm a critic, I would point out that despite policymakers pointing out the virtues or or desirability of of some degree of decoupling, it's not really reciprocated by corporations so far. Global value chains are still what they are. And in fact, they could say that if anything, COVID and the pandemic pointed out how important it is to maintain these 
these global value chains. So how, how to make these two worlds meet? I would just, just to correct myself, I should say, I think the skepticism of China was evident there in the second Obama administration. I don't think discussion of decoupling really started until right. the Trump administration. But I, I think in answer to your question, you know, the, the saying where you stand depends on where you sit. I think that is very true for U.S. corporates, at least. And, and you have seen, you're exactly right, this tension that I, I think many private entities in the U.S. continue to see that market opportunity in China. And I think they also will say restricting U.S. access to China, the ability of U.S. entities to invest in China, that that doesn't necessarily solve, in quotes, it doesn't solve the problem in the sense of the U.S. acting unilaterally doesn't address the issue. All you end up doing is penalizing the U.S. and you don't actually get at the problem that you're really targeting. So U.S. companies, if they see that opportunity and they don't see that any restrictions would be coordinated with other countries, aren't really that interested. And I also think, you know, the, the buy-in to this narrative of the sort of threat that China presents, that there may be consensus in the official sector in the United States. There is this great skepticism of China. I don't think that that is as widely held in the private sector. And to the contrary, I think you have a lot of private sector participants thinking that that narrative is very much overblown at this point. And that, that's a really key question that I don't think we have a, a certain answer yet on what are China's true intentions. Right. And Alicia, do you see this echoed in, in, in China in the sense that do you, do you see any chilling effect of, of the current debate about decoupling or perhaps even the values dimension, which has now been inserted into the trade debate that, that has made foreign companies more reluctant to either continue operations or to, to invest in the country? Well, I, I would put this question into the context of what time frame are we talking about? So, in other words, I think during the trade war time up to COVID, I think companies just didn't understand why, you know, what's the fuss. Because they saw the, gro the growth opportunities, because the ultimate potentially, yeah, I mean, we're talking about China's ultimate intentions in terms of increasing market share. I mean, it wasn't so obvious because at the time, you, if you recall, China was heading towards a trade deficit. And they announced that big time, we're going to head to trade deficit, a carry-down deficit uh, on top of everything. And, you know, there was uh, one-third of uh, imports, actually. I mean, uh, the equivalent of one-third of imports were tourism uh, import services, basically tourism. I, I mean, the carry-down service was shrinking for many reasons including services. So, you know, it all looked like China's becoming normal. And I think that's why the, at the time companies were like, wait a minute, I mean, it's all, it's, it's going to happen. Just give them some time. But when uh, COVID hit, I think companies started to see a different aspect. Losing market share, let's not forget, because China was increasing its export capacity while the companies or, you know, like companies in, in the West were closed down. It's like, wait a minute, I'm losing the contract, I don't know, in Russia or in, in, in Brazil because my 
companies close and China is taking it. I mean, it started to become more obvious. I'm not saying it was planned or anything, but that there was a trade-off here because it's about third markets only. It's not only about China. By the way, China was also becoming, frankly speaking, quite hard because you couldn't even get into China, you know? So, so that margin in a way for any multinational was becoming a nightmare, yeah? Because you couldn't get your executives or anybody else for that matter to get in. And then you were losing market share elsewhere. And then I think companies started to realize if this goes on, what are we going to do? So the, I think there's a little bit of a, a twist here because of COVID. Not in every sector, not the financial sector, for God's sake, because that coincides with the opening up, China's opening up. And I think luring financial uh, institutions of the important size and basically media impact as, as U.S. ones is also very appealing for China. But, but that's only one part of it. I think in other sectors, we're seeing this, this fear of China becoming too big, too developed, too, too competitive. We see this in Europe all the time, right? And it's very mm -hmm. obvious. Even German, you know, if you look at the reports by any German kind of lobbying or industrial, the, not only the European chapter, but basically every chapter is, is now calling up for, be careful, this is not what we thought it would be. So I think there is a change in, in perspective of corporate, certainly in Europe, and I would argue more generally. In listening to this, if, if I was a Chinese policymaker, I would respond and say, we're being painted as a, a country that's now investing in uh, self-sufficiency, in perhaps logging out from all too deep globalization. But hang on, we've just signed RCEP and we've just announced that we have an intention to join the CPTPP. Where is the United States when it comes to these big plurilateral agreements? In fact, you could make the argument if you're sitting in Beijing that China is much more willing to deepen trade ties across at least East Asia and the Pacific than the U.S. is. How does that argument play in, in Washington these days, uh, Stephanie? I think there are a lot of economists in Washington that would actually agree <laughs> with that assertion of where is Washington on, you know, ongoing trade liberalization and, and kind of these trade deals. And they're, you know, among the, I don't want to call them technical experts, but among folks that think about, you know, kind of economic integration and what is actually good for the U.S. as far as its ability to stay relevant um, and influential, in particular in Asia, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was the linchpin kind of of that strategy. And so I, I think there, there continues to be a lot of interest and hope that the U.S. actually gets back there and can join what is now the, the CPTPP. But there's the domestic political reality. And I think that is really impeding our ability to be more of a leader on trade and be more forward-leaning on trade. I, I do, in a kind of perverse way, I think China's interest in joining the CPTPP may be the wake-up call that our leaders need to actually get back in the game. And so there, there is the hope that that, that can happen but U.S. leaders also need to be able to make the case to 
the voters to their their domestic constituencies and explain why this actually is something that is in our best interest. And that has to do with making sure that the benefits, I mean, it sounds in this conversation, we're all pro-globalization, pro-free trade, because it's the most efficient way to engage economically. But then that efficiency, those benefits are then distributed. And how they're distributed has a lot to do with how popular or not trade is. So so in addition to kind of moving in that direction and making the case to the American people, part of that case needs to be based on you will benefit from from U.S. engagement in trade, not only folks at the very top end of the spectrum. And uh, Alicia, I can't not ask you a question about Europe. Where does Europe fit into this the story of the decoupling trade behemoths, the U.S. and China, is it is it an opportunity for Europe or is it a risk as as Europe tends to be kind of looking at itself a lot? What what role can Europe play? Can it help manage decoupling and dual circulation? What uh, what's your prescription for Brussels? Great question, Rem. I wish I had a short and and strong answer, but I don't because it's too complex. On the one hand, I think it's kind of ironic that we we are in, kind of so inward looking nowadays because we're so dependent, if I may use, from external markets. You know, it's like more than China overall. We, we tend to forget this. And more importantly, our economies aren't growing as fast as China, only per, perhaps 2021, by the way. Maybe close to China. I, I remember <laughs> an interview where somehow I said, okay, the U.S. will grow as much as China in 2021. Oh my God, it was published everywhere on China. If I were to say that Europe is going to grow as much as China this year, maybe, you know, that they won't take it. But point is, yes, only this year, we know that we depend on, on external markets. Yeah. And therefore being so inward looking is just a crazy idea to me. So imagine that we stop being and we start looking around and realize that there's these two you know, humongous economies sitting there. I think first thing we need to realize is that we, we would be as humongous as they are if our single market were completed. That's the first thing we should realize. Yeah. So it so happens we haven't completed it. So every idea of... Um, economic sovereignty, the chips deal that, you know, Vanderlein uh, announced during the, the State of the Union, etc. I mean, all of that makes sense if you have a single market. If you don't, it's crazy. So, so what I'm trying to say here is that rather than just thinking as we generally do, okay, here are these two gigantic economies. Where do we place ourselves? Why don't we start by saying, where are we first? Where is our single market? What do we have to offer? Rather than, you know, just, it's like a pendulum. Where are we in the pendulum? But that answer, that, that's not the right answer. Yeah. I, I mean, a little bit, I see the same thing with uh, the U.S. and China. A lot of what is discussed is about the U.S. looking at China. What about the U.S. looking at what the U.S. can do? Same for China. So for us, it's even more important, Rem, because we've not completed our single market. And, and that anything we, I mean, any answer to, to, to that competition and decoupling is we're too small, too fragmented. I mean, and we end up there. That's not a good answer. Yeah. So, so I think we need to work on ourselves first and then take maybe if we need to take sides, we'll see. But that's not the first thing I would do because we're too fragmented to even answer that question. And Stephanie, does, does Europe fit anywhere in the answer you hear now being discussed 
in Washington regarding how to deal with a decoupled world. And I, I mentioned the concept of friendshoring. There's this debate about friendly supply chains or, or whatever the term is. is. Is that realistic in your view? No, absolutely. I, I actually, I wanted to do a kind of board cloud of official statements from the administration and do a search for allies and partners because you hear that terminology, working with allies and partners, working with allies and partners. So it's, it is central, Europe is central to the broad U.S. strategy of how to engage with China, the answer being alongside allies and partners. And I think, you know, in principle, that works. And then you've got to get down to the specifics. And what does that mean exactly? So there was an announcement a few months ago on an EU-U.S. trade and, and tech council. You start to see, you know, that's at least structurally kind of moves in that direction. And I I think the U.S. and European counterparts are very smart to focus on shared areas of interest. You know, the, the values-based argument, I think, focus on climate. That It's good if we can identify some of those themes where we are like-minded and can work together. But then you actually have to get to the specifics. And here, you know, it's very, very much remains to be seen. I, I don't know if you all have followed the drama around, you know, TTIP negotiations, which have, you know, many years and not a lot to show for it at this point. We need to get past some of those issues that have really challenged our ability to, to be concrete in working together. And it's, again, another one of those open questions. It's an open question if we can actually get there, if there's going to be something tangible that comes out of this. So final question, still trying to find a, a silver lining to this all. Can, can the U.S. and China find areas to work with each other on? Or is the overarching relationship bound to be damaged because of growing investment in either decoupling or, or dual circulation? In other words, to what extent are other initiatives like cooperation on climate, as you mentioned, Stephanie, is that going to be a casualty of these persistent trade conflicts or, or just the different trajectories that the two economies are on? Well, I, I think it's the hope of the United States and of the Biden administration to make progress on areas where there is shared interest. So we mentioned climate, public health, pandemic response that has kind of waxed and waned. But I think, you know, there are some areas where, at least in principle, there is shared interest and there is the hope and desire to be able to work with China. On China's side of the equation, I think at least the perception in the U.S. is that China is reluctant to give up the leverage it might have and work together in those areas and not get progress in some of the areas that are more contentious. And here we're kind of back to the, the technology discussion. So, you know, the, the U.S. way of framing this is that China would be holding hostage some of those common areas of interest in order to get resolution around some of those tech issues. The U.S., I think, given that that's the perception, I think it's going to be really hard to make progress if it means tying those issues all together. I don't think there's appetite in the U.S. to do that. 
And Alicia, final question for you. Is there a, a bottom in sight for deglobalization or is this going to spiral further and further downwards? And B, I hope you're I hope you're going to be optimistic because I want to end this podcast on an optimistic it's note. It's not actually not uh, always spiraling down. I mean, we've seen that in history. There were, you know, times of deglobalization, types of re-globalization. So the question is, are where are we in this, this super cycle? Yeah, it's, it's about super cycles. I'm sorry, Rem. I'm going to argue that we're not yet at the bottom at the rest of the super cycle. And I, I think the reason is that basically the post-COVID world is going to be pretty tough for everybody. So it is very unlikely to me that we're going to, to share, you know, to share prosperity because it's going to be hard times. Yeah, and, and when you have hard times, it's much harder to share. And on top of that, although we are having obvious global problems, climate change being a clear one, we are not seeing, I mean, even in, in, in shops like the pandemic, that cooperation needed for globalization to be restarted. I'm not saying it's it, but the globalization being accelerated, maybe I should say that. Well, even though it's perhaps a, a somewhat worrisome note to end on, I'm sure it, given its, its tremendous importance to the functioning of not just the international economic system, but also to international politics and just the relations between these two great powers, it's a topic that, that's fascinating us for some time and will keep on garnering attention. Unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. So I look forward to continuing the conversation on U.S.-China relations at a, at a later point. But for now, Stephanie Segal, Alicia Garcia Herrero, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your thoughts and insights with me. And if you are interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, please go to our website at www.aig.co.uk slash gts. The AIG Global Trade Series 2021 is an international partnership between AIG, the Georgetown Law Institute of International Economic Law, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jacques Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021, or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.